morning, we are going to be looking at Jesus, our perfect high priest. We, I think last week it was something like our high priest. This week it's our perfect high priest. And we're going to be looking at verses 5, uh, 1 through 10. Uh, the priesthood originated in uh, Exodus 28, 1 through uh, uh, 1 and following, where the uh, priesthood was established, where where uh, Aaron was appointed as high priest and his sons with him uh, as the priest that would minister in the, in the tabernacle in those days. That's, that's where it has its origins. That's where its beginning is uh, as far as humankind is concerned. Uh, in, in Numbers 8, 6 and following, we have the establishment as the Levites, as uh, the, the entire family of Levi as being part of uh, the priesthood in a lesser role, I suppose you would say. They attended the, the uh, tabernacle and later the temple and uh, did their functions within the, within the assistance to the high priest. Uh, but, of course, Aaron was appointed as the, as the original high priest in the line then that follows was all from him or supposed to be all from him uh, it kind of got uh, mutilated in later years uh, but nevertheless uh, that's the way it was established uh, that's where it had its origins and uh, um, and what we have in the text this morning as we're continuing the whole the uh, whole uh, series here it's going to run for quite a while about the high priest there's going to be one break uh, that is a warning passage that actually Begins in uh, verse 11, uh, but and runs through verse uh, chapter through most of chapter six, and then it picks back up in the high priesthood once again. And in this particular section, we're going to have a different high priest um, introduced. And chapter seven will be all about the correlation between that priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so we, we'll have that introduced today. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that today. Uh, but when we get to chapter 7, that's pretty much what we talk about. So uh, we'll, be looking, we'll, be looking at, uh, we'll be looking here more at the contrast and the comparison between, between the priesthood of Aaron, or the Aaronic priesthood, that whole line, and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. There are similarities but there are differences, and uh, we're going we're gonna to start looking at some of those things uh, this morning as we get into the, the text of chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. So, uh, before we do, did we have any prayer requests we wanted to uh, share this morning? Well, Bob, I'm going to ask you to open this, please. Okay. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Amen. Okay, so we're going to look first of all then at the priesthood of Aaron in verses 1 through 4. It says, For every, pri- uh, for every high priest chosen, am- 
from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the, uh, with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So those, those are the verses we're going to look at, first of all. And I think that what we find within these, uh, these three verses, there are three, ba- or, or these four verses, uh, four verses, there are, there are three basic qualifications uh, that, the, uh, that the high priest is to meet. Uh, so the first, uh, so he begins off by saying this. He says, "For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed on behalf of men in relationship to God to offer uh, to offer gifts and sacrifices and sin." And there's basically two of those qualifications found in that text. And the first one is that the high priest is chosen from among men. Uh, he's saying here that the high priest is a human being. He's chosen from among men. That's who he is to be. Uh, he is not some terrestrial being. He's not, and I think in the greater context, uh, given that uh, for a, a large part of the first part of this text, we were talking about angels and the fact that uh, many of the Jewish sects of that day had elevated angels to positions beyond that which they naturally hold. And in case, in some cases, we're even worshiping angels. And I think he's making it very clear here that no angelic being serves as your high priest. It's a human being. That's, that's the point here. They're chosen from among men. They had to be men. They had to be part of the human race. Only a human being could represent man before God. That, that, that's the basic point here. And there's a second part to this. They're chosen. They're called out. Uh, it's not a position... Uh, it's not a position. Uh, it's not a position that you choose. That's that's a part of this. Uh, you don't get to. You don't. You don't. You don't just say. You know. I think I'm going to grow up to be high priest. That's <laughs> that's just not not what happens here. So he says, and he says, he says in Exodus 28:1, he says that they were chosen from among the children of Israel. That's. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, they, were, they were men who were chosen. And he tells us that his, their actions here are to be on behalf of man in relationship to God. That is, they are to be a mediator between God and man. That's the, that's the role of the high priest. He had to be a human being chosen by God to represent man before him. That's, that's, what, that's what the idea of this text is trying to get, get across. <clears throat> I think it's interesting to note here that there's a difference. High priests weren't judges. They weren't called to, to uh, adjudicate civil or criminal actions. They were called to represent men before God. That was their calling. That was, that's what they were called to do. Uh, they were to mediate uh, and the pinnacle of that mediation was probably the Day of Atonement that we looked at quite a bit last week in, in Leviticus 16. In Leviticus 16, we're laid out the Day of Atonement. That one day, for that one period of time, when the high priest was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice on behalf of the nation. He put his hands on the scapegoat, and he, and he, and he spread the blood of the other. 
and he spread those in the, in the Holy of Holies, and the other goat was turned loose into the wilderness to carry away the sins of the people. That was what it signified. Uh, that was done on one day for one period of time, and it probably didn't last very long that he was in there. And there was a whole elaborate process that had to be meticulously followed in order to make that atonement. And when you read through Leviticus 16, you understand just how meticulous it was. There was, there was bathing and, and changing of clothing, and, 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 and uh, everything was to be done in a specific order. And there was this little footnote after each one, and if you don't, you die. You know, it was kind of like, don't mess up. Do it right. You know, that was, that was the bottom line here. It's to be done as God intended. This is the high priest. This is his primary job. The high point of his operation was the Day of Atonement. And that's what he was called to do. He was chosen from among men to act on behalf of men, uh, men to mediate between, between men and God. That, that's, his, that's, his, that's his point. And then it gives us the purpose. It gives us the purpose clause, and it's part of what he does. It's what his, his function is. He's to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That, that's what he's about. Uh, man in his fallen state, man was made perfect, but he fell in, in Eden. And, and after that fall, it transmitted to the entire human race. And as a result of that, man is born a sinner. And he cannot be in the presence of God. So God initiated a means by which man could come into his presence which he could com- then commune with man. That was the whole point here. I remember when I was in sin, my uh, um, what would have been the class? Oh, uh, Old Testament survey class. Uh, the prof said, you know, the title for Leviticus could have just as easily have been How Sinful Man Lives in the Presence of Holy God. That's what that book is about. That's, that's the whole book. It's how sinful man can live in the presence of God. Here was the main step, the Day of Atonement. And, and the one who operated that day, I guess that would be a, a reasonable term to use, the, the guy who functioned in that role was the high priest. And he was chosen by God, verse 4 tells us that, not verse 1, but verse 4, that he was chosen by God among men. That's, that's, that's the point that's going on here. And his second qualification, he was the one who made sacrifice. He, he's the guy who made sacrifice. This was his function. This was his job role. This was his job description. What's your job? I offer sacrifices and gifts on behalf of the people of Israel. That's pretty simple job description. But it was a very complicated one when you read Leviticus. It says, it says he offers gifts. Um, in the NASB and in the King James, they put a both in there. It says both gifts and sacrifices, which kind of indicates an interpretive option, actually. Uh, because uh, this is a, the way this is written, it can, it can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is he, offer, he offers two separate things, gifts and sacrifices. Or it can be t- interpreted as the, ES, as the ESV does, meaning just generally this is what he does. In general, he offers gifts and sacrifices. Uh, those who take it the former way, the first way I spoke of, uh, where there are very specific differences in these two words, take the gifts to mean the non-blood gifts, uh, the grain gifts, the drink gifts, those kind of things. It would include also 
for that and for that for that for those purposes, claws, money, um, jewelry, any any of that kind of thing would come under the category of gifts. Anything that was non-blood related. Uh, the sacrifices, of course, were all the blood related items, the animals that were sacrificed on behalf of sin. Uh, that's that's the way this would be distinguished. If you if you take it that way, I think the the general thrust here is his basic job was to offer the gifts and sacrifices that people brought to God. And it's not getting specific about them. It's just saying this is what he did. This is part of his job was to offer offer the gifts and sacrifices uh, that people that people bring. That's that's over what he officiated is the is the idea here. Um, But if you want to take it specific. I'm okay with that because it doesn't really matter. That's what he did. Uh, that's exactly what he did. The important thing here is why he did it. Because of sin. That's why he did it. Why was this an important function? Why was this one of the main functions? Because of sin. This was how the congregation could come before the tabernacle. This is how they could sit there. This is how they could be in the presence of God. This is how God oversaw them. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is the whole s- significance of the high priest, is that man was a sinner and was in need of reconciliation, and the high priest was the mediator who brought that about. That's, that's, that's the idea that he's expressing here. And then he goes on in verse 2, We have an unhappy camper. <laughs> and of course, the, this was done. This, uh, the, uh, I guess, would probably, I just noticed I had another verse written down here. Uh, Leviticus 16 16. Uh, basically, this, uh, the, the high priest mode of atone, made atonement one day each year because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sin. That was his function. That was his purpose. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sin just as he does for those of the people. So the first thing it says here is is Given the fact, as we've already been told in verse 1, Aaron, the high priest, who, who Moses appointed after God called him, that he was a man too. He was a sinner, just like man. As a result of that, he had a mutual experience with those on whose behalf he ministered. That's, that's, that's the idea here. Therefore, he could be sympathetic with the people. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus was, because of what he went through in the incarnation, had sympathy. He could identify with, with his people. He's saying that he, they could be sympathetic. Here he says the, the, the word they use here is uh, that he could deal gently. And gently basically means to be sympathetic, compassionate, or use gentleness. It's interesting in the classical Greek... The verb that is used here for gentleness, this verb is a verb that used that means to be able to moderate your emotions. That's what it means. That's the way they use it, that, that you don't go to ex- extremes, which would be very important when you're dealing with somebody who's in some kind of trouble. 
when you stop and you think about this. It's, you, don't be, you don't just become passive and apathetic toward the person. That's one extreme. You know, it's like, how could you be so stupid? You know, it's not that kind of a thing. You know, that end. And it's not the other end that you get so caught up in what has happened to them that you're of no functional good. It's you hold the middle ground and you're able to minister to someone. That's, that's the idea of this verb. It's that you, you moderate your emotions. You moderate your feelings. Galatians uh, 6.1.3 speaks, I think, speaks to this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The same verb here, this moderated emotional stance. And it says, to keep watch of yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, you don't go to the extreme and you get caught up in what the guy is doing. And you bear one another's burden so you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, don't think you're better than you are. You're a man just like him. Keep it, keep it, keep it sane is the idea here. And I think that's what this verb is saying here. The high priest is someone who can moderate his emotions, moderate his feelings, be able to function in a time of, some, in a time of crisis in someone's life without going to extremes. And that's... That's, that's the idea that, that is being, being spoken of here. And then he goes on to say that the one who he is to deal gently with is the one who is ignorant or wayward. Now, this word doesn't mean he's stupid. It means he did something unintentional. That's the idea here. Uh, that he has uh, 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 failed to comply out of ne- maybe out of neglect or out of failure to realize what the law was or failure to, to really comprehend uh, uh, how he should behave or how he should act. It's, it's an unintentional act that he's talking about here. Uh, wayward, uh, basically, in, in the, in the uh, King James is, is uh, translated out of the way, and in the NASB is, is translated misguided. In other words, he, he made a mistake. That's the idea here. He messed up. He goofed. He didn't mean to do it, but he did. You know, it's kind of like that, I can't remember the name of the cartoon deal, but the, the, kids, uh, uh, the kids do something and nobody knows who did it, you know. I don't know. Uh, you ever, any of you that have children, you know, you ask a kid, why'd you do that? And they look at you and go, I don't know. Well, that's this guy. He did it, but he really didn't mean to. That, that's kind of the idea that it's speaking of here. It's talking about unintentional sin. That's what he's talking about here. In Psalms 19, David prays that he would be forgiven the things he did that he didn't realize he did. You know, those are those, those, kinds, those kinds of things. In Numbers 15, 22 through 31, which is a very lengthy passage, and I don't intend to go through all of it, but there are, there are a couple of important parts to this. To this passage because it addresses this this issue here of unintentional sin. It says, "But if you in verse twenty two says, but if you uh, but if you sin unintentionally, and you do not deserve and you do not observe all the commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, and all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from that day that the Lord gave the commandments and onward throughout your generations, and it's done unintentionally without knowledge of the congregation, and it goes on then down to." Verse 28, I just wanted to point out that it's unintentional. That's, that's the point here. And if the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake, 
when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. That's, that's the idea here. However, and this is important, intentional sin has a different outcome. It has a very different outcome. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among the people, because he is displeased, the, because he is despised, not displeased, despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. There was no forgiveness for outward rebellion. That, that, that was the point here. So both of the terms then, and in the NIV, it, it says ignorant and, and are going astray. Both of those refer to unintentional, unintentional sin. Unintentional. Uh, uh, something you, you, had, you didn't have a knowledge that you were doing something okay. wrong, and the other one was you just messed up and made a mistake. Okay. That would be All the right. way to, uh, to understand them. Okay. So here it's like with the unintentional sin, it's being forgiven because the person didn't mean to do it, and it's not exactly that it's repented of because it was never understood that it happened? Is no, he's right? repented of it because it's been, brought to, it's been brought to his attention. He did it. Okay. That's like that's the, the point. Like, I didn't yeah, yeah. It, but I did do it. And so yeah. Please forgive me. Whereas with the next one in verses thirty thirty one, that's intentional. That's the guy who. That's the guy who stands before God and does this. I will not. That's that's that one. That's that's the idea. Gentleness stems from the fact, uh, and the 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 condition here then is going to be explained. Um, for the for the uh, high priest, because it goes on to say, since he himself is beset with weakness. Mm-hmm. I just had a clarification that also those two differences in sin, like even in the case of like someone who's committed murder intentionally, but then asked for forgiveness, would be in the first category or the second? Well, in in the case of murder in in the Old Testament, the death penalty applied. Uh, that would be what we consider first degree murder. But well, no, but now there were the, the, the repentance had nothing to do with it in, in the Old Testament. It was just murderers were removed from from the family. We didn't have they didn't have prisons. They didn't need them. You know, uh, they they took care of it right away. They had they had uh, cities of refuge where people could go if they unintentionally killed someone and the family came after them. You know that they could go, but they also, if you look at the Old Testament, they also had what we would call manslaughter, which is unintentional murder. You know, uh, of course, we then redefine that into seventeen thousand different categories and degrees of which. But if you put it in the simplest terms, there was murder, capital murder, and there was manslaughter. That was that was the two two things. The one was intentional. I killed you because you know I didn't like you. The other one was, my ox got away and I ran over you, you know that that kind of thing. So, yeah, there was there there were differences in their law. I didn't really mean to get into a law discussion because I'm not an attorney. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but any rate, uh, but any rate, uh, those are those are very legitimate questions about that text. I think, I think the question might be too is, is there a chance for redemption? Yeah. So yes, you, you there's still the consequence that's still in place but you could yeah. even in Old Testament 
Well, even today, even today, even today, even today, if we still operated the death penalty, you know, if you were to commit first degree murder and you were to be under today's economy, under under Jesus economy, you know, you would go to prison. You might come to Christ while in prison. You would be forgiven and your eternity would be in heaven, but you still may face the death chamber. That's 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 the bottom line. That's that's the way it would work. Okay, I forgot where I was now. Okay. Oh, anyway, uh, yeah, he was to be, he himself is to be, uh, because he himself is set with weaknesses. And what this is saying is, hey, you know what? The high priest was a sinner too. He was in the same category. In fact, in Leviticus 16.6, the first thing the high priest had to do on the day of atonement before he offered sacrifices was he offered the sacrifice for himself. He had to offer a sacrifice for his sin before he could do anything else. That's that that's uh, that was an important uh, idea here. And and he 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 uh, he was beset with his own weaknesses. Hughes in his commentary says this was not so much human nature, but it was by human depravity uh, because he was fallen too. is the point. That's the point, too. Uh, Incidentally. That's the one place where Christ and the high priest are different. That's not the only place, but that's one place where they're different. Christ shared no human depravity. He shared humanity, but not depravity. He was not fallen in any way. Note here, the two points that he's making here is the inadequacy of the um, uh, is is the inadequacy of the Aaronic priesthood? Uh, the atonement was temporary; it, it had to be repeated over and over and over. We'll see later in Hebrews where it says Christ offered it once and for all. It's done. And and he goes on. He he, uh, <clears throat> um, he, he was he was uh, the priest was part of the. Uh, was just as fallen as the worshipers and just as in need of atonement as they were. But once Christ comes, it'll be once and for all in Jesus Christ. That's, 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 that's the emphasis that needs to be expressed here. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say, uh, well, he, this is, that's the point here. He goes on to say he was obligated to offer his own, uh, uh, his own sacrifice for his own sin, and just as he does for the people. The people, he was just as much a sinner as anyone else. And he had to offer his own sacrifice first. And then he goes in verse 4 and he says, And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. And then we go back to Leviticus and we see, and it's interesting in Leviticus, I'll talk about this in just a minute here, uh, but in Leviticus chapter 15 okay. is the death of uh, of uh, uh, of uh, uh, of Aaron's sons who offer a false worship, then Aaron's appointed. In other words, it's established. There's one way worship is done. There's one way worship is done. Uh, the privilege of being a high priest was not a career choice. I can remember when I was in seminary. Every once in a while, I would hear some guy talking about his career. You know, and I always thought, I hope that changes in your mind because it's not a career. It's not a career choice. It's a calling. 
You know, I never, uh, I personally, I didn't go to seminary to become a pastor. I was probably the only guy there, not for that reason. Uh, I never felt called to the pastorate. I never believed God wanted me to do that. I did feel called to teach scripture. And I went to seminary because I wanted to be the best Bible teacher I could be. That's why I went. Um, And I let those people torture me for all those years. (laughs) But at any rate, they do. You take Dr. Thomas for NTI, and you'll know what torture is. Uh, but anyway, uh, but at any rate, uh, you know, it's not a career choice. That's what the text is saying here. You don't decide. You don't get up one morning and say, you know, I was looking over this help wanted ads, and I think the position of high priest is just what I need. I like wearing fancy clothes. And I like getting covered in blood. Mm. Yeah, you know, but anyway, at any rate, it's not, it's not that. It's not something you seek. It seeks you. God seeks you out for it. It's not something you seek. And it certainly wasn't by election in the sense that the people got together and voted Fred. You know, that, that didn't happen. And they didn't sit down, as they did for a new apostle, because the economy had changed at that point, and, and cast lots to see who it was going to be. God made it very clear. He told Moses. He spoke to Moses. And he said, Aaron's the man. You put him in the office. Which is another point, because they're both chosen and appointed. God did the choosing. Moses did the appointing. And it stayed the Aaron line thereafter. It didn't change. God calls, and in his direction, Moses appointed Exodus 28, 1 and following. Incidentally, the uh, appointment of Aaron as high priest is accompanied by another event. Not only his sons, but there's another event that took place. It's found in number 16, and it's the rebellion of Korah Mm -hmm. and company, in which they decided, who does Moses and Aaron think they are? We're just as good as they are. We're just as spiritual as they are. We're just as capable as they are. Who do they think they are? And you know, if you go to, uh, if you go to number 16, and it's a long chapter. I read the thing. It's a long chapter. And you go through all that went on there. The bottom line is, Moses says, Moses falls on his face before God because this is open rebellion against God. And he says, he says to them, okay, Let's do this. You get your guys together and you have them light censers and you stand here and we'll see how God reacts between them and Aaron. And he says, then he called out Korah and his inner circle and he brought all their families together and he says, and you stand right here. And he says, if I'm wrong, then okay. If I'm right, the ground is going to open up and you're going to be swallowed, all of your family, everything you own. Guess what happened? The ground opened up and they were swallowed. And then fire came down and all those 250 men who were holding censers that had 
aligned themselves with Korah and friends, they were burned up. And then the nation was struck with a plague that killed another 14,700 of them. And if my numbers come out right, they killed a pro- God killed pro- approximately 15,000 of the Israelis for that rebellion. In Joshua 7, 10 through 26, God gives very specific instructions to Joshua about how his army is to behave itself when it takes a land, and one of the things is not to take any spoil. And a guy named Achan decide, you know, this stuff looks pretty good to me. There's no sense in leaving it behind. And so he takes it. And the next battle, the Israeli army is defeated. And Joshua is perplexed. What happened? And he calls out and he discovers God directs him to Achan and his family and finds out what they did. And he calls the family together. And guess what? His entire family is destroyed because of that incident. And then again in Acts 5, 1 through 11, when the people of the Jerusalem church were having a bit of a time and they were taking things they owned and sold them to, it was their generous generosity offering. Did I say it right? Was that the right? Joyful. I could never get it right. Anyway, uh, it was their joyful generosity giving. Uh, One couple said, we sold our property and gave all the money. But they didn't. And uh, they died at the feet of the, uh, the feet of the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira. It is my contention that whenever God starts a new economy, a new work, i.e. the priesthood, i.e. the establishment of the nation of Israel, and finally the establishment of the church, he makes it very clear how high the standard is. And he does it very pointedly. And he shows those who argue with it, die. That's what we have here. God made it very clear, I Picked Aaron, no one else. That's that's the point. God is in control of all of this. So then we move on from there, from Aaron priesthood to the priesthood of Christ in verse 10. And what happens there? He says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but we was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. As he said in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in verses 5 and 6, we have established here that, first of all, Christ met the first qualification. He was appointed by God. And he was a man. Today I have begotten thee, a son. That's that's the point of that verse. It goes back to chapter 1. It goes back to Psalms. Excuse me. Psalms 2-7. The point that Christ took on, he became incarnate, he took on human flesh, he dwelt among us as a man, he was born into this world, and he lived as a man, and therefore he qualifies, because he was a man appointed by God. That's that's the point that he's making here. Incidentally, these two, uh, these two psalms that are quoted here, Psalms 2-7 and Psalms uh, one ten. 
four. Uh, they were they were considered by the Jewish community as messianic psalms. They've always been seen as messianic. They've always been seen as pointing to the Messiah. And incidentally, the uh, the people of Israel understood that the Messiah would be both priest and king, which is what is going on here. Uh, the Messiah would be both priest and king, which is significant. That's significant change from Aaron's priesthood because Aaron was only a priest. And, it, and, it, and we know that Christ was not seeking his own glory in his incarnation. Uh, he made that clear. His purpose was to glorify God. John 8, 524. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you said he is our God. And incidentally, in John, just in John, from chapter 7 to chapter 17, counting verse 8, um, 54, there are 21 times Jesus makes reference to the, his purpose is to glorify God the Father. 21 times in those verses from 7, from, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from 7 to uh, 17. And it says he was a, and then he goes on in, in verse 6 and he tells us that something about the priesthood of, of Jesus, and, and he quotes Psalms 110.4, and he says, he says, you're appointed according to the order of Melchizedek. Incidentally, this is a higher order. This is a different order. Melchizedek is an interesting character. Um, we're going to study him in depth in the relationship between him and Christ and the typology that is found in him uh, when we get to chapter 7. But just briefly to introduce him this morning, um, he's found in, in Genesis 14.8 is where we find the first reference to Melchizedek. And it's an interaction that takes place between him and Abraham. And Abraham has just come from rescuing Lot from the uh, nations that attacked Lot uh, while he was living in Sodom. And this is, of course, before the destruction of Sodom. And, and, uh, and, uh, and Abraham has brought his, his people down, and he has fought the battle, and he basically has liberated Sodom from the clutches of these foreign kings, and he has rescued his nephew Lot. And what happens is, after the battle, Melchizedek comes out and meets, meets Abraham on the plains. And he has set up a little snack. He's got a fire going. He's got drink. He's got food. And Abraham comes to him. Incidentally, the king of Sodom is there too. He comes also. And, uh, and, and Abraham, when he sees Melchizedek, gives him a tenth of all the spoil as an offering. He makes a sacrifice to him. And, of course, the... Uh, King of Sodom, who is kind of a greedy guy, says, hey, how about me? Uh, let me share in some of this. Now, he didn't do anything to win the war. Abraham did. He's not entitled to anything. Abraham doesn't give him anything. <laughs> I think there's a play here on good and bad. Uh, but nevertheless, that's kind of the backdrop. But what we learn from this text is a couple of things. One... The ancestry of Melchizedek is not given anywhere in Scripture. We don't, know where he, we don't know anything about him. We don't know who his mom and dad were. 
his aunts and uncles, his cousins, his brothers, sisters, if he had a wife, if he had a family. We don't know any of that. We just know Melchizedek. That's all we know. He was an ancient king because it tells us that he was the king of Salem, which is the ancient name for Jerusalem. So that's something else we know about him. He was the king of Jerusalem. And we also know, because of Abraham giving sacrifices to him, and and we're told this, that he was a priest of the Most High God. In other words, he worshipped the true and living God of heaven. And he was a priest before him. So now we know he is a priest king who has no ancestry, who comes out of eternity in effect and goes back into it. It's kind of the picture that we have of him. He precedes Aaron by centuries. And according to Hebrews 7.3, which we will be looking at in a few weeks, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So basically, Hebrews is going to tell us that he was a type of Jesus Christ, and his priesthood is a type of Jesus' priesthood, because Jesus came from eternity. And Jesus is a priest king, and his throne is in Jerusalem. So this is the picture of Melchizedek. But he's two ways superior to Aaron. First of all, he's a priest king, and Aaron is not a king. He's a priest. And secondly, his priesthood is perpetual, while Aaron's priesthood is temporary. Aaron's priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood existed from Exodus 28 until 70 A.D., It ended in 70 A.D. You do understand that there is no true Judaism today. It doesn't exist. It's ended in 70 A.D. And then secondly, he goes on in verses 7 and 8, and he tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from the dead. And he was heard because... Because of his reverence, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is a a very interesting passage. We talked about this quite a bit last week about what Jesus went through in his incarnation. But here he is. He is telling us the second uh, qualification in the days of his flesh during his incarnation. That's what he's talking about here. That's what this means during the incarnation, during the days of his flesh. During the time he was living as a man, he offered up prayers and supplications. So he's talking about his time as a man, the prayers and supplications during his incarnation, not his, not his mediatorial work, or his, excuse me, his intercessory work currently at the right hand of God, but while he was here on earth. And probably, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and, and the, the point of this is he's able to, to mediate between God and man. That's, that's the deal. He's representing us before God in this point. He's actually operating as a high priest in these prayers and supplications is, is the idea. 4, 4.15 tells us uh, that he, he, uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but in every way was tempted and yet was without sin. So 
likely the point he's going to here is Gethsemane. That's probably the high point of this. This went on through his entire ministry, John 17, and so on and so forth. But it went on through his entire ministry. But at Gethsemane is probably uh, the, the pinnacle uh, that would be, talking, would be spoken of here. <clears throat> he says in Matthew twenty six thirty eight, my soul is overwhelmed with sadness to, or sorrow to the point of death. In Luke twenty two forty four, it's recorded, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and he sweat became like drops of blood. That's the idea here. That's the fervency of his prayers, the offering of his prayers, that that he understood the agony of human life. He understood uh, what it was like uh, to. To, to face suffering. He went through that. He suffered and he, he understood it. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we are told, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The point here is he carried out what God called him to do and he suffered as a human being so that he could identify experientially with you and me. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, and he goes on to say that he, 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 uh, he was able to save him from the dead, which probably should be saved out of the dead is probably the more accurate translation of that verse. Um, he, it wasn't, uh, he took it all the way to the point of dying, to actually suffering death on our behalf. But he could take his life back up, and he knew that. He's the man who over, overcame, uh, overcame uh, uh, death. And he says he did that out of, out of in, in the uh, ESV, it says, he did that out of reverence. This word reverence is also uh, translated as fear. It can be translated that way very often. It's the Greek word that we get the word piety from. Uh, but it means reverence to God. It means the awesome uh, view of God that we are to hold. It is that awesome fear of God that we are to hold. Jesus held that. Uh, and, and he was submissive. It carries the idea of devotion and submission. Matthew twenty six forty two. Not your will, but my, but not my will, but your will said that backwards <laughs> but anyway that's a, that's the idea here understand that he goes on to say that although he's a son he learned obedience through what he suffered in his obedience jesus understood what suffering was he saw it all the time he knew what it was he knew everything that was going on he knows every heart uh beat you have he knows every hair on your head he knows what suffering is but the idea here is, in the incarnation, he experienced it in his flesh. He experienced with you what it feels like. That, that's, that's, what he, that's what he's trying to say here. He, he experienced what it felt like. He learned the cost of obedience through suffering. And we're called to do the same, incidentally. That even in suffering, we are to be we are to be committed to him and we are to be obedient. That's the idea. He learned the way he learned this and he learned it all the way to actually dying. He didn't swoon. 
He didn't faint. He didn't fake it. He died. That, that, that's the point here. The point is, when one comes to Jesus, he comes to one who understands our pain experientially. He understands it. He understands it fully. And he did it without sin, 415. He never sinned, as opposed to, to us, on the other hand. And verse 9 goes on to his third, uh, the final qualification. Uh, having been made perfect, he became the, uh, he became, <clears throat> he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. The job of the uh, high priest was to offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement that would cover the sins of the nation for the next year. Uh, Jesus at Calvary offered himself as the atonement for our sin eternally. That's the point here. Uh, this, This brings up, again, the superiority of his priesthood. It's perpetual. He did it once and for all, and he took away sin, 2 Corinthians 5. That's, that's, that's the idea here. Uh, it goes on to say that all who obey him through the obedience of faith will be saved eternally as well. That's, that's, he, made it, he made the way possible. That's, that's, what the, that's what he's wanting us to understand here, is that all who obey him, Romans 1, 5, John 6, 29, where it talks about the obedience of faith. That's how we obey, by, by having placed our trust and our hope in him. That's, that's the picture here. Jesus, uh, Jesus' humanity compelled Complete, excuse me, completed all that the Father set for him, and he paved the way for the one that, that paved the way for the one who would be the source of our salvation. He maintained throughout the entire ordeal, he maintained his integrity. That's, that's the idea here. He completed the task. It's a finished product, eternal salvation. And then he goes on in verse 10 and he says, Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And here once again he says, <clears throat> he says, he's an eternal, it's, it's an eternal priest. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek, or excuse me, Jesus' priesthood precedes the incarnation and it follows the incarnation. Uh, he, was, he is a perpetual high priest. From the foundations of the world, God predetermined it to be so. Ephesians 1 and 4. And it was realized in the incarnation, and it's practiced today. It was completed his life, his death, and his glory. He's currently at the right hand of God, 113. Psalms 104, and he is after the order of Melchizedek, a higher order, a priest-king who serves eternally. That, that's the picture that he's pointing here. 
He's going to expand much more on this, this role. Uh, but what he's wanting, wanting us to understand in this, in this text is Jesus met the same qualifications that Aaron did, only he met them better. And he serves as our high priest. And he serves as a high priest from a higher order, that is the order of Melchizedek, one who comes from out of eternity, who has no beginning, who has no end, who is both king and priest, who precedes Aaron, who follows Aaron, and serves eternally in that position. That's, that's what he's trying to, to introduce to us in this text. And he's wanting these people, these Hebrew people, to understand this because they're wayward somewhat. Uh, and they're struggling with, their, with the things that are going on around them. And he's letting them know, you know, you're suffering right now because the society around you doesn't like you. Jesus understands that. They didn't like him either. He, he understands. He's, he, he's been there. He's done that. <clears throat> he experienced it. Therefore, he can help you. In uh, the middle of my uh, seminary experience, I'm going to probably embarrass my son. But anyway, in the middle of my... That's his problem. Because, <laughs> but uh, in the middle of my seminary experience... <clears throat> G, um, Michael was about 18 months old, and uh, he got bronchitis. Um, the the long and short of it is, it took what 18 months or two years to actually diagnose 10 specialists. Um, <clears throat> the long and short of it is, is the immunities that pass from mom when a child is born dissipate somewhere around 18 months. And, and somewhere, somewhere there in their immune system kicks into gear. He got caught in the middle. One had quit. The other hadn't really started. And he was behind. And, and his, his illness proceeded to pneumonia and anemia, and it became chronic. And they couldn't, couldn't determine why. The long and short of it is that's why uh, the immune system and the treatment was simple, but it took almost two years to get there. During the course of that two years, he had a staticus epileptic seizure that lasted for 54 minutes that was brought out by drugs by putting him in a coma that he was in for over th- for three days, three days, right? Somewhere during the course of that time, uh, we asked the... Uh, the physician, uh, where are we? What's happening? Uh, is he going to be okay? The answer was, I don't know if he's going home, and if he does, I don't know what condition he'll be in. You know, that's kind of a tough road to hoe. Fortunately, there he is. He has a college degree and a master's degree. Uh, he still has some issues. He still has seizures. He takes medication. Uh, but God was gracious. But, you know, from that, Kathy and I have a super sensitivity toward people with sick kids. Uh, Kathy uh, held a young mom when her child died at birth. 
and she held another young mom and her child while they died, while he died. Because it makes you super sensitive to, um, to the suffering of others. And I say that just to, to not try to equate this to Jesus, but that's how Jesus is. Because of the incarnation, he's a high priest who understands experientially your every pain. And he can help you deal through them because he can gently guide you. I just uh, thank God for that. That was a tough time. That was a tough time. I remember standing up in, in, in chapel and seminary. They asked for prayer requests, and I basically said, my son is very sick, and we don't know if he's going to live, and we are very scared, and I sat down. Every day I was on campus, Dr. Roscup, I, I know you've heard Steve speak of him. He's gone home now. But Dr. Roscup walked up to me and said, how's Michael today? Every day he saw me. And he said, I'm praying for him. And you knew that was true. And you knew that was true. You know, that's the comfort. That's the moderated comfort that we give because of experience from pain. That's what the high priest is called to do. That's what Jesus does. For me, that's the important part of this text, is that we have a high priest who understands us. Praise God. Father God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that Jesus is a high is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That he he is an order far above the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, that he is the one, the incarnate Christ who came to earth and suffered as we suffered, who identifies with us, who understands our failings, and who can thereby minister to us gently. And we thank you for our gentle Savior who now sits at your right hand, interceding on our behalf, still serving as that high priest. And we thank you and we give you all the praise in, in, in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.